Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Hope you had a great long weekend. Hope you got a chance to relax, to celebrate a little bit. I hope you weren't uh, one of those people out that I saw on, on Twitter and, and all over the place at, at pool parties or at beach parties. Feels like a lot of people were, uh, were using this holiday as a chance to get out and try to get back to normal. I hope that was a very small minority of people and that it's it's not the majority of us because this virus isn't going away because we're bored of it or sick of it or feel like we've lived with it long enough. We've got to stay vigilant. We've got to stay home. got to wear our masks. got to keep washing our hands. You know the drill. You've heard me talk about it before. We actually had an amazing July 4th here at home. I've said on the show before, i got a seven and a four-year-old. And they're at that great age where they're still very imaginative. And they like playing. And so what we ended up doing was uh, we had a stay-at-home cruise over the July 4th weekend. And it was awesome. My wife organized it for the most part. She uh, she gets 95% of the credit. I'll take a little sliver of it, but I didn't do a whole lot for it except play along. But it was awesome. You know, we uh, we played relaxing music all day and, you know, fun island music and things like that. We got dressed up for formal night. We got dressed up for pirates night. We ate awesome food that we don't usually cook, but everything was at home. We had a kiddie pool set up in the backyard and a slip and slide, and they just had a blast. And, you know, I'm one of those people that has always equated vacation with travel. To me, those are two synonymous words. And this is kind of the first time that I've done a vacation at home, and I loved it. It was a chance to unwind, to not work for a few days. It's funny because... Since I started this podcast, you know, I'm, I'm the only person working on this show. And so it's as good as I'm willing to make it. If I'm willing to put in 40 or 50 hours a week at it, it's really good. If I put in 8 or 10 hours, it's not so good. So it was nice just to say, you know what? I'm taking this long weekend. I'm going to unplug. Not going to do any work. Not going to do any work around the house. No yard work. No laundry. We had a nice relaxing cruise without going anywhere, without spending a lot of money. It was great. I hope you had a good fourth too. So today's guest is Marin Hinkle, and I cannot begin to tell you how excited I was to talk to her. Marin Hinkle, of course, is one of the stars of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She plays Mrs. Maisel's mother, Rose Weissman. She also had a role on Two and a Half Men for a long, long time. She played John Cryer's ex-wife on that show. And she's been a star of stage and film for many, many years. I got to say, I'm a huge fan of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and it's one of those great shows that I fell into very accidentally. You know, there's a lot of shows that I watch because people tell me, I think you'd like this, or I hear a lot of buzz about it on Twitter or, you know, in the press or whatever, and Mrs. Maisel was not one of those shows. We were looking for something to watch one night, my wife and I, and she said, you know, I've heard good things about this show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And honestly, at the time, I thought it was like one of those PBS period dramas, like Call the Midwife or you know something like that. I thought it was set much earlier than it is. I didn't really know anything about it, literally knew nothing, but just said, yeah, okay, let's try it out. And that is the best way to go into anything, if you can, a film, a TV show. If I went in knowing what the plot of the show was, or even just the rough synopsis, I don't think I would have enjoyed the pilot that much because I, I would know where they were building to. But not knowing, being surprised the whole time, being like, what, what is this story? Where is it headed? 
was was a really fun discovery. And now it's been on for three seasons, and it's incredible. It's on Amazon Prime. And before I say anything more, I should say, if you have not seen it, stop right now, bookmark this podcast, come back to it in a month, go watch the three seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, because I don't want to ruin it for you. If you haven't seen it, go like me, go blind into it, and just enjoy it, because it's really an incredible, incredible show. You know, this show's coming out on a Monday, and if you're on Twitter, you should go follow the hashtag Maisel Monday, hashtag Maisel Monday, because they've been doing this, I think it's I think it's a new thing. I think it's part of the quarantine. I could be wrong, but I think it's like a fundraiser. And they've had the cast and the crew at different points live tweeting episodes every Monday. And what it does is it exposes you to a lot of the technical team, the editors, the director of photography, the wardrobe team. There's just a lot of people to tweet along with that hashtag, as well as a lot of the cast. And you get amazing behind-the-scenes photos, amazing behind-the-scenes stories. And for me, it's just so fascinating. So we're celebrating Maisel Monday here, talking to Maren Hinkle. And, you know, she's one of the first people that I've interviewed that I had almost no connection to other than just watching her work. I wouldn't say I know my other guests well or that they know me for the most part, but there's some sort of shared connection. Often we've, we've followed each other on Twitter or have had some sort of passing exchange before. And Marin's like the first person that the minute she gets on the phone was the first I had ever talked with her. And I just didn't know how that was going to go. And I only knew her really as the character of Rose. I'd watched some interviews she'd done and stuff to sort of get a sense of what Marin was like. But you never know exactly how the person on the other end of the phone is going to be. And you'll hear, I don't think it could have gone better. It was awesome how this interview starts, and it's awesome how it continues. Marin was nominated for an Emmy Award, Best Supporting Actress, for playing Rose Weissman, and it's Emmy season again, so go watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel if you like what you see. Remember the name Marin Hinkle, because she's incredible. She was fun to talk to, down to earth. She's from Massachusetts originally, so we had that in common. It's an awesome interview. Here it is, my conversation with Marin Hinkle. Hi, Heath. Hi, Marin. How are you? I'm great. I just listened to your interview with Nick Offerman, and oh. I was so taken by it. It was one of those ones that you, you, you know, you see a great performance, and afterwards you kind of go like, oh, God, I should just give up. That's the best <laughs> that anyone can ever be. So I listened. I was like, wait, I don't need to do an interview. There's, he said everything so perfectly, both of you two. Um, but it was really inspiring. Wow. He, he's really special. That was really a great Thank you. That was a great, great interview. Well, thank you so much. That's such a great way to start. Because <laughs> I uh, oh no no problem. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of yours, and to hear you say that you you enjoy my work, it's really and it's funny. I love how in the end you said now maybe you can go back and start listening to all the others. And so two things happened. This all happened like within the last hour. My son and husband have been ca- out camping and hiking, and they just got back like yeah. really really late last night. They've been gone for a week, and Ben is a huge Nick Offerman fan. Like he, you know obviously. Loves Parks and Rec. Sure. So I walked in. I was like, 
okay, honey, I've given you, I'm going to give you some homework. You get to watch this amazing or listen to this amazing podcast about Nick and you're going to love him even more afterwards. Um, and then I have homework for myself, which is now to go back and listen to your other shows. So oh, that's I so great. To hearing all your other people. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. Nick is, he is so phenomenal. Like, as I said in the piece, like I've met him a couple of times now and just worked with him, you know, I was at this old house for many years. So that was sort of that yeah. connection. Yeah. And just every yeah. time I meet him, he's just, he's a prince and, what a sweet person yeah. and thoughtful and every single thing he said I was like oh, I agree I agree I agree yeah you're based in Boston because you mentioned that's how you met him certainly yep. because you've done the show there and so I started to look you up a little bit more and you went to Emerson correct I did yeah yeah so my dad was a he was like a dean at not even like he was the dean at a school called Fisher which is yeah, sure. Fisher Junior College which is a cro- then it right next door yeah yeah, so you guys I know had, I remember this about Emerson, you had incredible housing and in the whole area, I was always like, to go to college in that area, I couldn't think of a better place in yeah. our country. It's like a perfect college set setting, I think. It know? was so cool. Well, it, it's weird because I feel like in I graduated in 2005 and I feel uh-huh. like in the recent times, they've really upped their game in terms of like they put, they built a lot of housing right in the theater district now. Uh, you know, Boylston and Tremont there. Uh, And, but when I was there, they could only house something like half of the the student body. And so I had transferred in and actually like it was my junior year and transfer students couldn't get housing. So I lived, yeah, but it was great. Well, I, I ended, I, I, um, I'm from Ohio originally, so I didn't have family uh here. I I had Uh an apartment in Brookline and just rode the green line in every day. And It felt like work, though, like in in the best Uh kind of way. Like I I was making TV, which is what I love doing and commuting in and just like it felt so professional, I think. Yeah. And did you think the program, I've heard just nothing but amazing things about the whole arts program there. Yeah. I had a, a teacher, well, she was a director named Amelia Bensusen, who uh, ended up, I think, being one of the head acting directors there for years. And now she's left to take over a theater in Connecticut. And she would talk about the student and the level of like expertise. And she said, the kids, and I'm sure you are right included in this, the kids are ready for the professional world yeah. as they enter. Like there's yeah. this level of you know, focus that they've given it. And it's possibly because you guys also have such technological savvy. So you guys have already made films or you've already done TV series or, you know what I mean? So it really is like a professional school, like a real... You know, it isn't just people dabbling. <laughs> yeah, the well, thing. that w- I, I got a note from a friend last night that reminded me, like, we used to do a, a TV show in high school that, like, literally, there was no TV program. When I when I got into Emerson, a lot of the other students were like, oh, yeah, in my TV class, in my broadcast uh, journalism class in high school, we uh, didn't have uh, anything like that. So we just kind of no. made our own. <laughs> and yep. back then, it was public access on cable. And you could just, if you handed them a tape, they would air it. And so we did, you know, I think 32 shows or something across two years. Yeah, it's it was it was it was fun right out of the gate. It, I'm, I'm curious uh, because you yeah. your grad school work was at NYU, right? Yeah. Which that was my yep. other like I considered going oh. to Tisch or or Emerson yep. and landed on Emerson. But yep. how did how was your experience with NYU? Yes. Uh, when I was young, I had spent some years. I was a ballet dancer. So I would go downtown to Boston Ballet and I was in the Nutcracker. I was in a million different shows. And for a while, in I, I thought that I would want to go to undergraduate school in New York. Yeah. But I, I think I realized that I needed 
it's almost like my dream was going to be landing in New York later. So in a way, don't start that professional world right then, but start it outside of there to gain a kind of confidence to enter. So my answer to your question is I'm glad I went to graduate school then because I think I would have gotten overwhelmed by the city. I noticed I was a dorm counselor. I I noticed that the kids sometimes that New York was a bigger component to their life than even college was. Right. You know what I mean? It was like competing instincts there. It was, you know, I'm just going to go out and hang out and party in the city or I'm going to go to class. And then they kind of got swallowed up by the city. Right. So I was definitely happy to be a little bit older. and But I loved being a graduate student there. The class that I was in was only 16 people, oh, wow. eight women and eight men. And we really became a family. And we did, you know, probably in our three years there, we did about 30 plays. And we would, we would just sort of, you'd, you'd end up playing like, little old men or you'd play the the crazy French woman or you'd play, yeah. you know, and, and I think that it, for me, it was like a safe place to really discover lots of characters. Right. And then later when I went out into the world where I had to actually make some money, pay off my loans, <laughs> I felt, I felt like I had had my stomping ground in a very trusting environment. So yes, I think NYU is great, but I think you have to be ready for the intensity of the city probably before you enter that school. Right. But, but I'm sure just being surrounded by all that theater too, to, to be able to just go and see, <sighs> You know, everything from really high end Broadway productions to, you know, small little like black box shows and anything in between. Yeah. Like it yeah. must have, that must have been a graduate school in and of itself, I'm sure. It, it, it absolutely was. And you know what? Many of my professors were in the working world. So we'd go watch them and they're off Broadway or their Broadway shows. Yeah. And so we kind of felt like we had almost like a backdoor in that way. And then, of course, it was more difficult when we got out later. All of a sudden we're like, wait, now we have to pay for a Broadway show. Right. I don't have the funds to do that. But ba- but basically I did. I felt like that what was going on in the theater scene was a huge influence then on what kind of performer I wanted to be. In fact, if you had asked me or told me, you know, you're going to be part of the, you know, something like two and a half men in 20 years, I I would have thought, well, that's the craziest thing because I don't even own a TV set. I don't even know much about television. And I mean, I knew who Charlie Sheen was from having seen him in a, a you know movie, or or who John Cryer was. But I certainly was not following what was happening with like television and film life. Yeah. I was much more based on Chekhov, Shakespeare, and a lot of sort of good theater. Yeah. And then new new playwrights as well. Well, and what was that transition then from from stage acting to to film and TV? Yeah, I mean, part of it was kind of what I uh, half joked about, which is that I did need to pay off a lot of loans. So it was kind of a financial choice um, and the necessity of of doing that. And my husband, so I had fallen in love and my husband, who was a theater director when we met, um, decided after a number of years of doing that, that he wanted to go to law school. So if you combine sort of all my graduate loans with his Right. He went to Columbia. His loans, we somehow were hitting a, around the $200,000 mark. Yeah. And my $200 a week theater paying jobs were not kind of making a dent in right. those loans. That's 100 so, years um, to pay that off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. You're very good at math. So <laughs> I, I realized I, I called my agents or they called me and they were like, you know what? You need to start thinking about television. Yeah. And so it was probably after I, I'm, I would it was about, you know, five to eight years of primarily only doing theater where I started to sort of like dip into the world of TV. And I, and I did a little bit of like a soap opera first. Again, I had never, this is my little secret. I was just about to say it quietly. I had never watched a soap yeah. when I auditioned to, to be on a soap opera. And I pretty quickly had like the learning curve was fierce there. And I had a lot of pages every day 
didn't know what it meant to, you know, to have to do something like to repeat the same action over and over and to stand in a certain place right. and to make That's sure so you, there was the continuity. Yeah, it was a very different way of, of being. And then I remember I booked like a little role on Spin City. And again, I did not know continuity. I did know, not know that you had to, you know, make sure that you stood in the same place, you know, the same time for the right. camera. I mean, all these things were not really taught to us in our graduate school. Now they do at NYU. They teach television and film acting. But we really didn't have that when I was there. So I really didn't know what I was doing, but I I, kind of had to learn quickly. Well, and I feel like so much of it, too, just it ends up on sort of where you think you're going to end up. Like I was just always on a TV track for whatever reason, like film, just it never interested me. It felt, I don't know, pretentious or more, more taxing. And and I like there was something I liked about sort of the churn of television and just sort of you could have things up very quickly. And, you know, I I just always saw myself heading down the TV path. And and I didn't know if it was going to be writing or directing or producing or, you know, just exactly where I would end up. But I yeah. could imagine, you know, if, if you saw yourself as a theater actor, yeah, thinking about TV just, and film, just it, it wouldn't yes, occur to you. You're right. I have very so my background. I grew up in Newton, yep. Massachusetts. I'm a Newton girl, and my parents were very um, highly educated and really focused and and prioritized education. And I think there wasn't even not that they didn't love the arts. We we certainly saw. You know, we went to museums and I saw some Gilbert and Sullivan's, but I I didn't really ever think of being um, an an artist. And then on top of it, the idea of what it meant to be in television and film felt like weird, magical, like Disneyland or something. It just didn't, it wasn't like a palpable thing, really. And so I think when I went to graduate school for theater, my father would always say, well, you know, you're going to need to have this as the, as the, the backup, you right. know, have, you know, the possibility of teaching. And so I, I think that, you know, it's like you just haven't opened up to what it would mean to try something that your own family didn't necessarily value that much. Right. We didn't really watch, we didn't sit down as a family and watch TV. That was just not really in the, in our, we watched the news. Yeah. And so when I started, I remember when I first told my mom, I was heading to LA, I, I had a job. I was working on a show called Once and Again, which I loved. And it was a great sort of to have that be my 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 first experience of of being on a as a series regular on a on a television show was an incredible thing. But I remember telling my mom about it, and you could tell she was like, "Oh, not Hollywood, yeah. you know, not no, not the place <laughs> where all those that, movie yeah. stars walk around." And I was like, "No, no, no, I'm going to live in Culver City, mom, not Hollywood." You know, it, it was just, it, it. I think she was really frightened of me being, you know, sort of drowning in a in like the archetypes of uh, going to parties and. Right you know, getting lost in drugs or something, yeah, you know, that I kind think, of sunset strip is, is yeah, this like the seventies, right. eighties, somewhere in there when, yeah, yeah. that kind of, yeah, totally. She that's was it. really scared that she was losing her daughter to that, that my values would go awry. But, you know, anyway, I think, I think what happens at that point, cause I was already in my late twenties, early thirties is I had the core of what I was. I was definitely not like, <laughs> I didn't get lost in that way, yeah. you know. And I think that's probably important, too, to have to have that sense of self, To as you said, with grad school, to kind of go through all of these experiences slightly older. That, you know, if, if you yeah. had gone out to Hollywood, to L.A. at, you know, 21, 22, it may be a very different thing than at 25 or 26, right? 
Yeah, I've always been, you know, I'm a, I think I am a person that likes to do a lot of research and feel really kind of intellectually safe about something before I I really dive. Yeah. And that's probably how I approach character work too. And so yes, I if I had been the kid that had finished high school at 18 and been like, "Okay, I'm going off to California and yeah. going to try and find an agent." There I just I don't know how I could have survived. So it would have been done right away. I had to have the backdrop of, of, of a graduate degree of having done like a hundred plays right. before I actually was going to dive into this, this other world that, by the way, you know, the thing that's so hard about TV and film is plenty of people make it at, by just like walking right in and never having done it before. Right. I don't think you can really do that in the theater. You know what I mean? You don't get a Broadway show without having figured out how to be a, a theater actor first. Right. right. But there certainly are many of, a person that get a huge Hollywood film because some casting agent was like plucked them out and said, you are the guy, right. you know, you are the one. So it, it, it is, it's been, it's been a world that I've had to navigate, you know, like two and a half men. That was ex- so fascinating for me. I did not really watch too much multicam work. Sure. Um, and so all of a sudden I'm on a set and I thought it would be like, theater. I thought that, you know, I heard there was a studio audience, but I didn't realize there were five cameras that would be on you. I didn't realize that you were going to get a script and every day get new rewrites so that it could end up funnier, right? Because that's the goal is we're going to, you know, attempt to really find great humor and let people laugh. It's a a place for release. But the thing for me was I was always so nervous. I wasn't doing it right. You know, I, I, and I remember Angus T. Jones, who played my son on that, you know, who was just a magnificent, he was a real a, incredible kid, yeah. very wise beyond his years. He never once got nervous. And so we would be sort of standing at the door where my character was always, Judith was always waiting to sort of enter into the realm with Charlie and John. And and I was panicking with sweat pouring down and Angus was giggling and would like start tickling me. <laughs> and I think like he just, he was that kid that had that kind of comfort. And I was definitely the person that was walking around figuring out like, I don't like kind of like, I don't want anyone to the imposter syndrome. I don't want anyone to know that I didn't really know what I was doing, right. you know? And so it was, again, the learning curve was enormous. I really loved learning on that show from those experts. Right. And, and where did those nerves come from? I guess. So is it, is it the live audience component of it? Is it just getting the timing right? Is it the other people you're, you're working with, you know, Charlie and, and John and all that? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. I, I think I'm, I run with a, a strong sense of nervousness all the time. Like I had a, a, a safe distancing group of girlfriends come over the other day and I'm not the greatest host. Yeah. And so, well, what I mean by that is I get nervous in a kitchen, right? That I'm not doing it right. right. And it's funny before they came, I felt like, again, sweat pouring down. I was like, am I do? I think I just have a little performance anxiety all the time. Yeah. I think even when I was young in going in front of a class and speaking, I was not the kid that was deeply comfortable doing that, which is funny that I ended up being an actor. But I, I definitely, I get like hot flashes. You can see on my chest that it's like, it breaks out in a kind of almost rash of nerves. Yeah. And yet it is funny that somehow that gives me that inspires me too. I think that what really is exciting is when I just get to disappear into being someone else. I think there's like a part of me growing up that loved being away from myself. Yeah. And does that sound sort of odd? You you understand what no, I mean? Yeah, 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 I'm with you. Yeah. I, I felt like 
in the unsafe land of another character was actually a more exciting person than maybe my my own hmm. you know smaller life or right. something. And so what I what I think is thrilling about working on Maisel, for instance, is because we don't have a studio audience, you have this way where you're traveling through time where they're giving you these extraordinary clothes that have been built for you and then your wig goes on and then the makeup and then even, you know, I never wear nail polish in real life, but for the character I do. And so you, I don't even recognize myself. Yeah. In fact, people on set, when I come to set and hang out watching a scene before I've done all that, there have been moments that I'm not this is crazy, but there are moments where they actually don't know that it's me because <laughs> I don't look like that character and they right. know me as the character on set. But what was great about Maisel, I think, was that it was like being a little girl again and, and just play acting when you're five or six and then becoming someone else. And I think what was harder about Two and a Half Men is that you, the audience is there with you and you're aware because they stop each take after like one little scene you don't have the way of disappearing into character. You're very aware that you're performing yeah. and make, trying to make people laugh. And so I think that was harder for me than what, what it means on, on Maisel's set. And is uh, is part of the difference on Maisel just kind of the the wardrobe and things just sort of taking on that, that persona of Rose? Is that a piece of it or is it part of the shooting style? It's, you know, the, the long extended takes and the steady cam work and things like that. It's almost more theatrical than... In yes, television, in yes, a way. Yes, I think, um, and obviously, you know, sitcoms are are their own kind of beast or their own kind of magical sprite because they're tiny little scenes and they're all created with like very, it's almost mathematical right. how they're created. So you kind of fit the puzzle in a certain way there. It's different, you know, when I worked on more long form and certainly if I did something like a Law and Order episode, it, the character arc was in a very different way, right, than, than the sitcom that we did for 12 years where pretty much the jokes had a, a similarity a yeah. lot of the time. But I think what I love about Maisel is like in real life where we don't know what's coming up next, I love that the way Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan have written Rose, each episode is like this mind-bogglingly exciting new part of this woman that I would never have predicted right. the episode before that she was heading towards. Like when they told me I was heading to Paris because I was leaving the family because I had to like, you know, return to something from my own youth to sort of rediscover and re re kind of find myself. I just, that first, that first year, I would never have thought that that's where she was going, you know? And so, and then the same is true this, this past season when they brought my care to Oklahoma. They never told me in that first or second season that I was from Oklahoma. <laughs> so suddenly I was like, wait a minute, who am I? Yeah. You know, I wasn't told, should I have had a Southern accent? Should I have, you know, been a different kind of person that grew up on a farm? You know, so it, the, but these kinds of things again are like life. They're so, they're challenging because you go, Oh, well, let me just be open to the newness of what the new day has. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I had a grad school teacher I loved very much named Paul Walker, not, not the Paul Walker, who is also the actor, but yeah. he, he taught us to like what they say in improv to, to never say no and to always say yes. And you know what I mean? So it's like, you just kind of open up. My arms are sort of spread open right now. You open up and go, what are you offering to me world? I mean, look at what we're dealing with the virus right sure. now with coronavirus, right? And, and look at what we're dealing with so much in, in, our, in our culture and in our country, the not knowing what tomorrow brings. You either kind of collapse with the fear of that or you have to just say, well, at least today I have to get food on the table. I have to get a little bit of, 
you know, body moving exercise. And I have to connect to those I love. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's, I guess my long answer to your question about the difference of how I, that works is I think that I enjoy how Amy and Dan are writing these hour long pieces where, as you say, it's like a little playlet and it's got this quality of it. Just, it's just, everything is always new each time we get a new episode. Right. And I love, you know, I feel like your character has had such a great journey over these three seasons. And as you said, Paris and Oklahoma and just sort of there, there's all these new discoveries of sort of who she is at, at every turn. But the writing is just it's so good because I feel like every character is on that journey. You know, you, you learn something yeah. new about Joel or you, or yeah. about Abe, yeah. or, you know, obviously Midge, you know, there's just, yeah. they're all so deep and there's just so many dimensions to them. And sort of as you learn these new bits of data, they somehow make sense with the picture that you yeah. already have. There's nothing that contradicts. You're like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense that yeah. she would live in this, you know, little shithole in Paris where it's raining yeah. through the roof. And yeah. you know, of course, yeah, I could see right, that. Right. Th- yeah. Thank you. The, it, the con- I, I agree that the contradictions of each of those characters, it, it feels so delightful to me. I mean, I think I always get this, you know, and I was a, 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 like a little girl and, and I don't even know what, why this image came up, but the idea of like throwing spaghetti on a wall and seeing what will stick. <laughs> yep. I have this imagined idea, and I'm not quite sure if this is somebody told me this about what the writer's room of Maisel is like, but I have a feeling that Amy and Dan, and I wish I could be a fly on the wall, that Amy comes up with these like, you know, just even the way she dresses is so fantastical. Yeah. So she comes up with an idea like, we're going to have a merry-go-round and it's going to be next to the ice rink and it's going to be in Coney Island and we're going to have, you know, Joel there. And then we're going to have, uh, you know, now we're going to throw Lenny Bruce there and they're going to end up on, you know, the merry-go-round and it breaks down. Let's see how we're going to make that work. And then they, and all of a sudden they go build a merry-go-round. You know, it's, it's like, I, I feel like magic happens in that writing room of spaghetti thrown on a wall. And then somebody goes, Oh my God, it's stuck. You know, you know, we're all very, all characters on that show are quirky and we are in our own way kind of contradictory, but that is what makes us human like life. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking about one thing just sort of uh, on the arc of of both your character and and Tony Shalhoub's character of just sort of as, as you learn these different backstories, like in the first season, I feel like their marriage just makes perfect sense. You know, they've been together forever. They're very comfortable. They have this beautiful apartment and then sort of as you learn these new pieces, you know, Rose had this other life in Paris and, and has this background from this, you know, small farm in, in Oklahoma. And Abe yeah. has these, you know, these far left wing tendencies. Yeah. Just like I, I'm wondering if, if you've ever talked with Amy and Dan or with Tony about sort of what would have drawn Rose and Abe together? How did they find mm-hmm. each other? Mm-hmm. That's you know what? We haven't done that. One thing I was so lucky to find with Tony, he is, he's, in, he's an incredible human and, and an incredible performer and an incredibly generous performer. And so that first day on set, you know, I was nervous. I didn't know Tony. Again, back to my nerves, right? Yeah. I was like, Tony Shalhoub, I've seen him in so many different things, so many movies. And I, I also followed him on Broadway. Every show he ever did, I was like, I'm going to see him and he transforms. So when I met him, I thought, well, how are we going to make history happen as if we've been in a 30-year marriage? Right. But he's so kind and funny that you just sort of fall in love with that being around him. And so I guess what, what I felt with Rose was that the first time she ever was lucky enough to be present in his 
sphere, you know, whether it was a party that they met or whether it was somehow through maybe Columbia, you know, Rose potentially was invited to uh, some sort of gathering in which he was talking. And I feel like she saw him and said, I want to be around that person. Hmm. That person makes me feel happier to be alive. And I think that what was neat when we first met, you know, all of us kind of got together for our first read through is I did go up to, I probably went up to Amy and Dan that first day or at least a day or two after and just said, this is a good marriage, right? And they looked at me like with big eyes, like, oh yes, Hmm. this is a good marriage. They, they love being in each other's company. They're going to fight. They're going to bicker, but they love being each other's company. So I kind of always hold that, even though they're, they're always seem to, seeming to be at each other. Right. Ultimately, I think the two of them, and it's funny how that first season they had their beds that were next to each other. Right. And then they were, remember one day they had to like pull the beds apart yeah, yeah. before, you know, their daughter sees them the next morning. I think at night, whether or not they end up, you know, rolled around next to each other, I think they do hold hands up, all the time. I think that they do connect. I think they have a really solidly delightful relationship. And you know what? Amy and Dan have that. Mm. I watch them as we do our read-throughs. I watch them on set when one or the other is directing and the other comes by to watch. They make each other laugh all the time. Still, I don't even know how long they've been married. They're like little kids. And I think that in in a sense, uh, Tony has that. He's very childlike. And so I think that it brings out like a very youthful side of Rose. Yeah, that was a long answer. That's my that's adoration for Tony Shalhoub. I love. That. I did some press where they had me have like a I love Tony Shalhoub T-shirt that they gave at the end. <laughs> oh, that's and great. And I once in a while, like I'm slightly embarrassed to wear it, but sometimes I have worn it like to the grocery store yeah. pre-COVID, and people are like, "Oh my God, so do I." <laughs> and when we were in Paris shooting, like Tony would walk down the street, and it was he was a superstar to the Parisians. Wow. Like they love Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, I want to ask too, just sort of thinking about Paris and, you know, the Catskills, Vegas, Miami, like there's something about Maisel that is just so big that I feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, a a lot of other shows, and maybe, maybe I'm thinking more in the multicam world, but sort of you, you have, you know, your three or four main sets and they're just kind of always built and there might be one or two other places you go occasionally or, you know, shoot on location from now and then, but there's something about the Maisel world that my wife and I both just love, like how it grows and mm-hmm. it just, it stays consistent. You, you you never feel like you're pulled out of that time and it just, everything looks like a beautiful, I don't like a Cadillac ad or something from like mm-hmm, the late fifties, mm-hmm. you know, and no matter where, where in the world you are in any given week, like how yeah. is that just to, to, th- that's it, part of those surprises it, too, right? Yeah, it's incredible. It is. I mean, you mentioned kind of how theatrical it is. Amy and Dan have a background. Amy was a dancer herself and comes from a a life in which her father was a a comedian. And she, I think, had gone to see him perform or certainly knew um, other performers in her life. Her mother has a very theatrical bent, too, and also performs. So I think there's part of Amy that I think is, is, is working on making us like the biggest non-musical musical television yeah. show you've ever dreamed of. I think we've had the record now of the amount of, I can't, they don't have it in front of me, but we could look it up later. If it's like 300 extras that were in like the first episode of season three, yeah. but you know, we have more people on set sometimes than I have ever been in one space together, like almost in my life. Right. Wow. Um, and it's just thrilling that they all get orchestrated 
with, you know, either sometimes song and dance comes out or just laughter. And so there is, I love that you say this, there is something about watching that kind of size, which you, like it's when we watch the old MGM musicals or something, or just movies, you get transported by it. And then you kind of add in the extraordinary genius of our um, set designer, Bill Groom, and then you add in Donna Zakaska, who does all of our costumes, and this incredible uh, DP, David Mullen. And these guys are such top of their game that when they kind of all come together with their vision that's that large too, you you kind of can't help but feel like you're floating, but either A, acting in it, or B, I think, watching it. Like people say that, they kind of, they say that they're like laughing and smiling, just even seeing some of the, like the scope of how big the visuals and how friggin' fast everything goes. Right. Like there are, we have to speak really quickly. And that's kind of like, you have to keep your brain kind of whizzing forth with that. Amy always says that people in real life, you know, when you see a lot of the, the shows like soap operas and all that and there's all this kind of pausing and waiting like amy's not interested in that kind of like holding in a sentimental way she doesn't want that she doesn't right. want that sentimentality none of it and if we're performing that way on set she's like okay okay faster right. you know what i mean she doesn't want us dropping into that so thank you for saying that about the show i think amy and dan would be pleased that you feel transported and it's like an imaginary world that kind of pulls you from some of the probably the struggles and challenges of our own, our own world. I mean, it's, it's no accident it came, it, you know, not to always get political, but I think in this day and age we are, and this all kind of happened right around, you know, the particular person that we have in office. And right. I think there's a, there's a, a, there's something to be said for people needing to escape some of what they're feeling that's making them feel nervous and, and wanting to like have something that has more delight and joy to it. Yeah, and lo- and love, you know. Right. W- when I was listening to some of your other episodes, like your interview with Nick Offerman, he talks about being on his set, Parks and Rec, and how those characters had all that kind of, you know, stuff, the baggage. Right. But the end of the day was there was like care and love that was being offered by that show, and I feel that's true with this show too, right? I think in the end, what pulls the people together, like look at that the buddy comedy of Alex Borstein's character and Rachel Brosnahan, so. Right. You know, Midge and Susie are, they're not lovers, but they're certainly best friends and right. they care for each other, man. Yeah. They have each other's backs. Yeah, I just watched the scene uh, when that she, uh, Rachel's headed to the Catskills and she's in the diner uh, with Alex. And uh, Alex says, you know, we're not friends. I don't see no no friendship ring. And yeah. <laughs> and Midge just kind of hides the box. And she's like, what is that? It's a ring. <laughs> I got you a yeah, friendship I ring. Know, I love that moment. I yeah. saw that recently, too. It's I know they're so funny. They're just it. And you know what? I'm going to say this and then I'm going to kind of go think about my growing up in, in Newton for a moment. I had the most glorious friendships, my female friendships in particular. I look back. I was just thinking of this because during COVID, one of the, the pluses of, of us all being home and being alone at times is we really had more of a simple time to remember people that maybe we ha- didn't take time to connect to, right? Yeah, and sure. This is sort of, I, fr- I found this sort of cross the the board, people are telling me this about their lives too. So I reconnected with a lot of my high school friends. And those women are so much of who I am is the result of like being 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever, 17, and growing up with those women. And I, and I feel like that's what Midge and Susie are doing. They're growing up together. Like they're, 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 they're finding who they are as in a, in a response to what the other offers mm. so that you see 
Midge taking in like the bristly comic bite of what Susie gives her. And then you see like the, the warmth, maybe more loving, you know, other gentler side that, that Midge offers Susie. Right. And we always have that. We're always finding, I hope that we're, that our best friends are giving us a perspective on, on how to open up to something that maybe we didn't think of being ourselves. Yeah. And it does feel like those, those connections are getting stronger in this time. I'm thinking even just, my dad is one of 12 kids and (gasps) like, it's, it's incredible just to like, you know, usually the times when everybody is together is like, you know, a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And that happens every, you know, two to five years, depending, but, um, we've started doing weekly zoom calls, uh, like for the last two months. Yeah. As, as many as can join. And it's, you know, it's, it's my dad and his siblings. It's, it's my cousins. Uh, sometimes there's even the third generation in there and it's just nice to sort of check in with everybody and, and sort of feel that weekly connection. You know, it's 45 minutes to an hour, uh, once a week. And yeah, if you can make it, you do. And, if, you know, it's a different group every week just because of what people have going in their lives. But it's something oh, I that, love we, that, you're doing yeah, that we wouldn't I have done it. it. We're not in for fact, COVID. I wonder if you, who's very savvy, I'm sure, with technology and having, you know, produced and run shows, um, I wonder if there's a way that you could be recording that for posterity so that I don't know if you have children. Do you have children? I yet? do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. So your own kids, how old are your kids? They're they're seven and four. Yeah, so, so that they star, have yeah. that too when they're a little bit older. Like, I really encourage you to do that because that's amazing. If I could go back in time and have recordings of my mom's family, her parents. I yeah. mean, we've done that. My mom turned, uh, I hope she's okay me saying this. Okay, my mom, well, I will just keep it more loose. My mom turned an important good age. She's a, a, a mediator and was a judge in Boston, and she's uh, an extraordinary woman. I cannot say enough about how much I just adore my mother. And so it, she, we were all planning to go to New York for her birthday uh-huh. and do this whole big event. And I, of course, had the right places everybody was staying, and I had the restaurants and all the whole thing. Of course, none of that happened because of COVID, it ha- because this, her birthday was in May. But same w- with what you just said. We all got online and and gathered together for a couple hours and sort of dressed up and talked and it, it, it was not the same but it was pretty extraordinary and, and it was able to bring more people than would have been able to fly into new york yeah i, I want to ask you too just about parenting yeah, in this everything. time because yeah. you know yeah. for, for me yeah. with a seven and four year old like my seven-year-old just finished first grade like a week or two ago, but she started yeah. new school this year. So she was only with that peer group for, you know, five or six months before school shut down. Yeah. You have a son. Yeah. He's a teenager, right? Yes, he is. He's 16 going on 17 in a month. Yeah. yeah. So like I, I just I wonder thinking to myself at that age and how much I depended on my friends and, yeah. you know, got out of the house and away from my parents like how how is he coping with this time, and how yeah. are you as a parent coping with this it's a time? Great, it's a great question. Well, my son fancies himself or calls himself an introvert. I, I think probably he is actually. Yeah. Um, and and he and then he'll say when people ask him how was it, he goes, "Well, all my introverted tendencies are just like you know fine and happy right now doing this." But that was maybe the first month, and he enjoys a video game or two or ten or ten hours, yep. and so he, that has been you know at a higher level, shall we say, than ever before. And the struggle, I would say, about me saying no to how many hours he gets to do that a week has, has definitely, you know, goes in his favor rather than in mine, yep. um, as long as his, his, I guess he kept up his grades and all that. But I, I will say that he, like as I, I, I was telling you earlier, that he went camping with his dad. He had hiked the John Muir Trail out here oh, in sure, the Sierras yeah. and 
He just did um, Sequoia. He just he basically realized about a month ago that one of the things he missed most was like being free in nature because mm. we uh, we live in California. We're able to you know hike and climb and go to the beach, and obviously with COVID nineteen. We really had to be, be wary of that, and plus they closed down all the like you know the local parks and places that we were doing our hiking. Right. So that was something that he missed. Maybe sometimes he said even more than the friendships, he was missing what it meant to be free mm. physically outdoors in space. And I love that about him. And he was able to reconnect to that when they opened up the parks again. And and so now back to his friendships, I think. He has been able to still be online with them, and um, fairly recently we, we started saying, you know what, let's go take walks with some of the, the, the guys that, you know, you miss the most. And yeah. So we've been able to do that, and he went to the beach and hung out with them. So I would just say about getting your kids outdoors again, that if you can do that safe distancing with some of their friends. But it's harder when they're littler, isn't it? Because oh, yeah. they don't really understand the level of, of danger, right? I would imagine, and then they would want to just like kind of run off and 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 be free that way. Whereas Ben really gets it, you know. He he knows that he, we're going to go see his grandparents, and so he cannot. It, it it would be at the expense of their safety for him not to be thoughtful about this, right? But it, but but he's also my kid is a loves reading, and he and this is kind of sweet. He rediscovered a lot of his childhood books again. And I mean, even like Harry Potter, he had read them all like 50 times, and that's kind of almost not even an exaggeration. Yeah. And here he is at 16, like going back and saying, I think I need to go back to them. And I loved that he did that, you know? Yeah. It's funny what you what you take differently at different points yeah. in your life, whether it's books yeah. or music or art or yeah. just like your life experience sort of, it gives you a different interpretation every time. Yeah. Yeah. And he also, he's, he's a, 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 a kid who I think also likes fancying himself like a time traveler. Uh-huh. And I don't think he wants to be an actor, which is great. He wants <laughs> to do something with more math and robotics and in that world. But we, as a family decided, let's go back and find our favorite films. So my husband and I would sort of find our favorite films from childhood, and then we would rotate and show Ben them. And I think that Ben got really thrilled by the, the 1980s films, for instance, that I loved. Yeah. Um, or even we, I, when I was in college, I saw Fanny and Alexander, you know, the Bergman film. Yeah. And I didn't know if Ben would take to that, but he, I think he said the other day to a friend that that's his new favorite film. And that's I was awesome. like, okay, yes. And, you know, My Life as a Dog was a film that I remember watching when I was young. It was Lassa, Elstrom. It was just, it was great to have Ben kind of get opened up to sides, I think, of where his parents had, had found their beginning artistic excitement. Yeah. I feel like it's harder with this generation. Like, you know, and I know when I was growing up, you know, I was like that first generation that had cable TV. And so there yeah. was, you know, AMC and Turner Classic Movies, yeah. you know, things where you could watch older films or even just, you know, they would they would buy them for syndication on like a Saturday yeah. afternoon. And, you know, you just got exposed to stuff a lot more readily than now sort of in the Amazon, Netflix, Hulu world where you have to opt in to see something, you know? Yep. And, and you know, and you know what they say, because you have children and, and you're much younger than me, is that, you know, there's a part of me that gets worried about like attention span yeah. with this generation and, and sort of moving too quickly through 
like whatever you're watching and buzzing through in your social media feeds or in your Twitters or whatever, it, not you, but what one sure. does. And so I, I do worry about that with Ben, and I, and I really often ask him to just like hold. If he's done like a bit of gaming, I just sort of say, hey, what if you just take a break and let the brain – not that I'm asking him to, to do sort of mindful meditation, although God knows I would love him to do that, <laughs> but like to just take peace for a moment and, um, and sort of click off. And I think that the value of, of that is in, immense, you know, and, and I hope that kids and parents, because we're there to help guide them, I hope that they ask kids to sort of stop, to put it away, you know. And, and I do think that that was a, a huge part of, of what this past three months has taught our family is that sitting down to a meal every night yep. and having it always be, you know, made it within the house because we didn't order in. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and to have grains that I had not used all my lentils and my barley for, for years. And I had to figure out like, well, how do I make this last? Cause I'm not going to go to the grocery store this week, you right. know? And what do we do with those few potatoes that we have with the onion? And then, you know, how do I throw in some spices? And that stuff, that I, that return to simplicity has been kind of really thrilling in our family. Yeah. I, I also am a big baker, or, and my mom is an amazing baker. And so I did something. I treated myself to a kitchen aid, one of those mixers. Oh, the stand are, mixer, you know, sure. Look like yeah, yeah. From the, yeah, and I have never had one, so I've always done the stirring by hand. So when it arrived, it was like, I felt like um, Rose kind of discovering how to cook, because I right. don't think she's probably a good cook. You know, she doesn't <laughs> even let herself eat much. Right. And so it arrived, I opened it up, and I just stared at it. Like, I don't think I've really treated myself to that kind of big gift in a long time. And I just kind of went... Oh my God. And then I did nonstop baking for the next two months. You know? Yeah. What have you been like breads or desserts? I have. Or? I did. I've been doing it. Well, that's good. I, so I figured out how to start, you know, we remember there was a shortage of yeast. And yep. so I did a lot of borrowing of yeast. I did. I, I ventured into lots of different breads. I'd never made a challah and a girlfriend of mine teaches people to make challah online. So oh, cool. I figured that one out and made my mother-in-law happy with that. And then I, um, do banana bread and I do uh, zucchini bread and then I um, do lots of cookies and I'm like a huge fan of like chocolate chips and peanut butter and sort of like you know rethought how to do oatmeal chocolate chip cookies like five times over and you know so I've done that what have I, and the, oh and then cakes that's been interesting like I always thought cakes were only for birthdays right yeah sure but in COVID all rules go out the window so we have cake like once a week. And so I've been enjoying the New York Times has all sorts of different like easy cakes. So I think that's that's probably the one I've been most excited. That's, that's Sometimes awesome. I spend the entire day just making a cake and then my family looks at me. We're only a family of three and they're like, wait a minute, where is this all going to go? Right. And so then I give it away to the neighbors. You know. Well, that's good, too, sharing. And, you know, that's yeah. that's a nice part of all this. Um, one last question, just sort of on the yeah. on the covid stuff. Um, so course. I'm assuming uh, production of season four had had. Had to get postponed because of this, right? Yeah, yeah. We were supposed to shoot in May, and that wasn't going to happen. And we knew that really early on, so it wasn't like a, a huge shock. You know, I think what's 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 always challenging is we've created this family. That's like the the perhaps the reason that I ended up falling also madly in love with being an actor was that I love these like little new families. Like I never had a daughter, but I have this daughter 
you know, Rachel Brosnahan is this extraordinary daughter. And then when you're away from that family, right, you, you miss them the way you miss your own family. Right. And so that's probably been the hardest thing for me is that I, I long to be back in that family to, to enter into that, that alternative universe of the 1950s rose. So right now there's no set date on when we start. We're just all waiting to when New York, you know, opens up. And so what we do is what you were talking about with your own family is we do our Zoom calls yeah. as a Maisel family. Oh, cool. And we get on and they're large and extended. We can have Zach on. We can have Stephanie. We can have Leroy, all the people that play the amazing characters. And um, and it's it's been it's been delightful to actually hear what everybody's up to. It's also been scary at times to hear if, you know, some people are going through the, sometimes the challenges of health stuff and that's, you know, the support goes right out and that's also good to have us as the family there to support it. So that's, I would say that's been the hardest thing is, 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 a whole, is, is it looks like a year may, may, may have gone by between, you know, when we all were last shooting and that's, yeah. I, I miss them terribly. Are you able to, has your work life changed? Well, yeah. So I actually, I got laid off uh, just prior to the beginning of all this kind of COVID wow. stuff. I, I lost my job on March 12th and it was a producing oh job my God, I had for 15 date years. That feels, that's like yeah. a big date for everybody. Wow. Yeah. And was it because of COVID that they had to no, do No, it was like a corporate restructuring, but it was, you know, sort of like the next day, as I understand it, the office was shut down and, and nobody's gone back since. And, you know, for wow. me now, like trying to job hunt during this, that's part of the reason I started the podcast was just there was yep. like, there's no production jobs anywhere, not just in Boston, yeah. but New York, LA, like everything's shut down. So just yeah. trying to figure out like, sort of what my next move is has been, <laughs> has been challenging right. to say the least, but it's been nice just sort of to connect with everybody and, and sort of realize that, we're all going through this as an industry. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel better at least about sort of TV and film work than like, I feel like live theater people are oh. really in a tough spot it's, because it's, it's just, yeah, you can't have an audience, right? Right. It's heart wrenching to think. I mean, you you imagine we all do. First of all, Broadway audiences are often made of tourists. And if people aren't allowed to travel, okay, right. there goes the primary bulk of the audience. And then there's also a huge percentage of older people that go. Right. So why would we even want a, a person that's elderly to, to be sitting next to someone that potentially could get them sick? So it's it's, you know, one of my best friends was directing her Broadway debut of a play and she kept pushing understandably like rehearsals to happen and everybody felt very safe. And then it, it got turned into something that now will be like in a year or, wow. or a year and a half is when they feel safe to say, it's not to say that Broadway is going to take that long to reopen, but you know, that's what producers are having to do is to turn it around and, and get those same actors back. And, you know, I just look at shows that, uh, you know, I, I saw Hadestown. I don't know if you were in New York to see that. It's what a, a piece that I believe everybody should see, you know, kind of like the way Hamilton was. Yeah. And if that doesn't come back, I will, I will like eat my hat. I will, I would like to invest in it to like make sure that like things like that, that I saw and said to myself, I want everyone to get a piece of this experience. Yeah. So I just, I just only pray that there'll be a way that, that it can come. I don't know how, though. I don't have an answer to how that can be. Yeah, I think sure, we're all I'm we're sure all looking for that, right? Trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. But you're right. You know what? In what you just said, I'm so sorry about your the jobs ending for you. And I, I can only think of the you know one door closing, the other opening, and that you'll look back and think because look at what you've been doing with your podcast. It's you're offering all this joy to people to be able to, you know, 
hear what you know a, a radio show that can hopefully inspire them in in a way. Yeah, well, so thank you. Yeah, that's I'm, very nice. I, I think this will we'll look back and what you and I will re-meet and we'll say, okay, that was the interim time before the, the reason why was because that other time yeah. was meant to be. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel that way too. And I, you know, it, it's like, like you getting new scripts and, and learning new things about Rose, <laughs> like every yeah. week is, is a new discovery of myself too. And just saying, Oh, I'm, I'm good at this thing. And I can try yeah. this and, Oh, why haven't I done that before? You know, it's, it's been, that's been nice, sort of the, the introspective part of this and the, the self-discovery part of it. That's been a real yeah, positive and, during this. And, you know, I think often, which I know you do, too, because you went to school and were with a bunch of artists, like, trying to sort through, okay, what is this life going to be like? Yeah. And probably one of the most important things that was told to me in, in graduate school was, okay, if you've chosen to be an actor, what you've chosen to do is spend majority of your time being unemployed. Right. And I remember when I heard that, at first, I was like, that is the meanest thing to say, but it's kind of true and so unemployed as a as a performer is going to have to mean that your other parts of your life are huge rich and blossomed which was even more of my desire to have a family not that I didn't want it before but I knew that like to be able to you know put my love into my child and my family life he's 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 my you know everything and the icing on the cake is when I get to have the job right like before I got this job, I had a, I was, uh, I had a kind of a health crisis of sorts, and for a couple of years I didn't work, and that that kind of time though allowed me probably to have a a kind of depth of appreciation and wisdom or something of 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 approaching the work that I think allowed me to have the maturity to play Rose. I don't mm. know if I could have before, and so again I look back and go like, okay, it wasn't that that necessarily made the other happen but i i the kind of person that, that i am playing this character is is a result of the of the amount of time I, I wasn't able to work those kind of things we all you know hindsight 2020 a little bit there yeah no that that's that's beautiful you 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 don't know when you're in the thick of it what's coming but as yeah. you say you look back on it and you say oh that th- this wasn't wasted this was this yeah. is what got me to to the next chapter. And, and we all like, I, I think so much, I, I was asked to be a guest teacher for at my son's school for a theater class. And when the kids sort of ended up like just, you know, connecting and going on, I, I, I connected with the teacher who I didn't know. And I said, well, what's this been like for you, you know, teaching remotely? And she said, you know, I knew I loved teaching before. I didn't know how much I loved it. And it's because I love being with kids and I've Mm. missed so much being in space with them. And I feel like she said, this really moved me. She said, I feel like when I'm going to get in space with them again, I'm going to want to just like treasure that beyond belief Mm. and be be so aware that this is the, the, she said, this feels like the greatest profession I could have found. And she said, I didn't even know how much I loved it until I was sort of asked to pull back. And so maybe we all can get a little bit of that when we all see each other again, like I want to hug everybody when we're allowed to yeah. longer and harder right. than I ever did before. And I was pretty, you know, it, it, I was a pretty good hugger, but like, I, I think we're all going to be great huggers. after this. <laughs> How great was that? Huh? Marin Hinkle. She was so much fun. I don't think that could have gone any better. As she said, my interview with Nick Offerman is one to listen to. I hope you'll check that out as well. And I hope you'll come back on Thursday because I got a new show then. 
And if you're a Maisel fan, I think you're going to enjoy it. It's uh, it's Maisel week here at Quarantine Creatives. So come back on Thursday for that. Go check out Marin Hinkle and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel streaming on Amazon Prime. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a message. Let me know what you'd like to hear, what you like about the show. Talk to you on Thursday. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>